0: One of the women in there always says that she wishes there was no reason for us to know each other, but she's really glad it's there.
1: You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the Nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. On today's bonus episode of the Mental Health Download, our CEO, Mike Bros, interviews his longtime friend and collaborator, Trisha Mason. Trish is a licensed professional counselor and chief operations officer of 12 and 12 here in Tulsa. Trish has also facilitated several of Mental Health Association Oklahoma's free support groups. Actually, she currently facilitates our Strength and Serenity support group. As she talks about in this podcast, it's a joint venture between the association and the Tulsa County District Attorney's Office. The group is for people who have lost a loved one to a violent crime. For more information about the association's free support groups in Tulsa and in Oklahoma City visit mhaok.org forward slash support groups. Okay, so during this episode, Mike and Trish first talk about the impact of the association support groups. Then they focus on the special 12 and 12 day celebration coming up on Thursday, December 12, 2019 here in Tulsa. On 12 and 12 day, you can meet many of the 12 faces of 12 and 12, meet its amazing staff, including Trish, take a tour of its facility or simply drop off donations. All the details are on 12 and 12's Facebook page. Okay, let's get started. The mental health download starts now.
2: Trish, we're going to get into a little bit here later about your work currently going on at 12 and 12, and the great work that you guys do on treatment and recovery. We'll get into that. But I want to just kind of go back to the beginning, Trish. You and I have known each other. Gosh, uh, we're, we're closing in on uh, 26, 27 years. Is that not correct?
0: That is correct.
2: And we first met. I came to the Mental Health Association in 1993. And I think at that time you were already involved with the association on a on a committee as a volunteer have i got that right
0: yes we i worked with uh, your education coordinator and we took brown bag lunches into some downtown companies
2: so for our listeners that shows that uh, trish and i we got a long history here Trish, uh, you are a uh, licensed professional counselor. Have I got that correct?
0: That is correct.
2: And uh, you um, talk just very briefly about your educational background and where you grew up at. And for our listeners to kind of have have you a little bit more in context.
0: Sure. I grew up in southern Oklahoma in a small town called Duncan. And I ended up at Oklahoma State University. Got my bachelor's and master's degrees there. Go Cowboys. Uh, Moved to Tulsa in 1987 and my first job was in a little outpatient alcohol and drug program that's no longer around. So when I got out of grad school, this is kind of an interesting thing. I didn't know for sure what I wanted to do, but I knew I did not want to work in the substance use field. So of course my first job was in the substance use field and every job thereafter has had some component of substance use in it, which is tells you how prevalent substance use disorders are in our community.
2: And how long we've been trying to struggle with this as a state, as a community, that we still are not where we we don't have enough funding, and it's always a battle to be able to provide, and the demand far exceeds our resources. And it was true 26, 27 years ago, and that's basically still true today.
0: There has been some progress. Part of the last 20 years I spent working for community care, health insurance, in the behavioral health department. And when I started there in 1998, residential treatment for substance use disorders was not covered. And as some of the laws changed, we had to, behavioral health benefits had to match medical benefits, which was an amazing stride forward, not just for substance use, but also for mental health issues, that you couldn't limit the days if the medical benefits weren't limited to inpatient. Treatment. So that's been a change that we've seen, at least in the commercial world. And so we, we've made some progress, but we still have a long, long way to go.
2: How did how, what was your role there? Explain to the listeners a little bit about what you did.
0: When I started at Community Care, I, I did utilization review for behavioral health benefits, and then in the 20 years there, by the time I left, I was the manager of the department and managed a small customer service call center, and we had to work with benefits, and we worked with employers, we worked with providers, and we worked with members. and. One of the things that I'm most proud about that of the 20 years that I was there, and I'll I'll tell you, when I went to work for community care, I had a lot of my friends in the mental health field tease me about going to the dark side. And I was so our former CEO always said, if you do the right thing, the money will follow. So because community care is locally owned and operated. We had a relationship with our providers and with the companies, the employers that purchased us, and our members. And we, they li- we lived in this community. So we were able to really help our members make sure that they were receiving appropriate care that was cost effective. But also there were times that as utilization reviewers, we would work with our providers to we would remind them of a service that maybe they'd forgotten that the member even had. So I really felt like we did our best to take care of our members with the benefit plan that was purchased. And because we were local, you called and you got to speak to a live person.
2: Yeah, I I, I just really glad you mentioned that Trish because I I talk about around here at Mental Health Association all the time about uh, I guess in in some of the language in, in the literature and things you hear is high touch. And sometimes these plans and people feel that the mental health care system in particular, but the healthcare system in general can be not that user-friendly and you need a point of contact. You need someone that you can call. And I know that was a lot of, I think we utilized you in that way. If there was a problem, we would call call Trish. Uh, That's what I would always say. And uh, I knew someone in that personal touch. And That's really important when people are in need. They're uh, sometimes traumatized, uh, sometimes they're uh, anxious, they're afraid, they're confused, and then sometimes they need an advocate. And I think that was a part of your role there at community care.
0: It was. And and by the same token, I used the Mental Health Association also. When we worked with people who'd been inpatient, we would often tell the the staff at our provider uh, hospitals that... You know the mental health association has free support groups. Be sure that that your be sure that your client, our member, knows that that there are free support groups for depression and anxiety, and those who've lost a loved one to suicide, and uh, you know parents supporting parents, and it. So obviously, it was a reciprocal relationship.
2: Yes, and you know I know our mental health assistance center. I talk about that all the time about you know when people contact our mental health assistance center now is that we very similar kind of a role we're trying to help them navigate uh, the system and uh, we emphasize all the time if it doesn't work out where we're going to refer you to you call us back and we'll continue to work with you until you're satisfied Uh, i try to teach my social work students is there's a There's a real difference between just giving somebody a number and a name and making a real referral. And a real referral is that they always know they can call back. And I know that I always felt like that, the work we did with you at Community Care, that was always high on your priority list as a mental health professional, but also as an employee of Community Care.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: So um, kind of moving to uh, your work with us as a volunteer, you uh, and uh, I know you, uh, I have to tell the listeners this real brief story. Uh, we finally decided, and, uh, you know, gosh darn, you know, their old Trish has been on our committees and been a volunteer. We need to get her on the board of directors, and you readily accepted that, and we brought you on to the board, and you were on there. And then somebody came along and said, oh, wait a minute, Mike, we're in violation of our bylaws because, Trish, you had been uh, one of our support group leaders. We don't pay our support group leaders much, uh, as you are well aware, but we pay what we can. And uh, you are always very faithful, first with one support group, and then later with two. We're going to talk about both of those here in a minute but uh i had to go i had to do the go to trish and say trish gee you got to choose you're going to either have to give up because we did pay you're going to have to give up being a support group leader or to stay on the board or give up and i i i mean as i remember i think you may have hesitated maybe for i don't know maybe half a second uh something like that and you said <laughs> sorry mike i'm off the board i'm going to stick with my support groups and that's where my passion where my heart is is that is that kind of your recollection too
0: That is exactly my recollection. It was an honor to be on the board and I really enjoyed it. But I I felt a strong commitment to the support groups.
2: And you knew you could still continue to be involved and be on the committees and be always have a voice with us, which we take great pride in and how that works with us in terms of our volunteer base. You're still a volunteer, obviously have been from one of our longest tenured volunteers among that very elite group that have been around for that long. And um, as they say around here, uh, before Mike, uh, there, <laughs> there, there aren't too many. There are a few, but there's not too many uh, that say uh, use uh, before Mike, but you're one of those, uh, Trish. But then you were, I think the first support group you did was our Survivors of Suicide Support Group. And for our listeners who maybe are not familiar with what that support group's all about, won't you take a little bit of time and then maybe talk about your history and uh, background with the uh, survivors group?
0: Sure. Um, Survivors of suicide is for people who've lost a loved one to suicide, family and friends. And I started that group, I think about 10 years ago. And it's a very challenging group to do because there's so much so much pain and and grief and but it's also very, very rewarding. And I did that group until just about a year ago. And I don't remember exactly when I was also doing I can't remember what we called it then, another group for parents or loved ones who had someone suffering from a, Parent, a mental health issue.
2: Parents supporting parents?
0: I think I think that's what, um, I I believe that's what it was called back then. I think we've had a couple of name changes over the years. Uh And I did that one. And honestly, that wasn't the best fit for me. It was a wonderful group, but I wasn't the best person for that group. And you and Mark Davis came to me and another facilitator and said, hey, the DA's office at that time, it was Tim Harris, has approached us about doing a support group for people who've lost a loved one to homicide. And Irene and I were both like, wow, that sounds like a great need. And we really hope you find somebody for that group. And you you both were kind of fishing for Irene and I. And we were both like, no way. Well, you and Mark talked me into going to just come to the meeting with Tim Harris. And I left that meeting and told you all, "Okay, I'm in. And so we started that group about eight years ago, I think. And for a year, we only had one family, and they came faithfully twice a month. Well, over the years, that has grown into a core of about six or eight people representing three or four different murders in our community. And they have gone to court with each other. They have gone to pick up their loved ones. One woman went with another woman to pick up her dis- her murdered mother's belongings, and they are people who have really bonded. And so I've I've really grown a lot with that group too. Uh, as I said, about a year ago, I transitioned survivors of suicide over to one of my co-workers at 12 and 12, Richard Turnham, and he's been doing that group for a year. I think it's got great attendance. Um, he's done a wonderful job. It was just with my new role at 12 and 12, I I had to I had to give up something. Sure. And I'm still doing Strength and Serenity. And it's um, one of the women in there always says that she wishes there was no reason for us to know each other, but she's really glad it's there. And I, I think it's a an amazing collaboration between the DA's office and the Victims Advocates and Mental Health Association to provide that service. There aren't very many of those groups throughout the country, and ours has been very successful because of the support from Mental Health Association, Oklahoma, and the DA's office.
2: Yeah, the the two groups that you led at one time, the Survivors of Suicide Support Group, of course, and now Strength and Serenity, the one common denominator is trauma. I consider myself a survivor, a close, close, very close friend of mine died by suicide a number of years ago. And I actually attended the support group a couple of times for myself. And uh, and it was just a beautiful thing to watch those group members take care of each other. When that group's going well or those groups go well, it's the participants taking care of each other in a lot of ways. And then, of course, strength and serenity. And I know you always tease me about how we got you into that leader, <laughs> uh, into that leadership, that support group. But uh, we knew Trish. We knew that that particular group in partnership with the district attorney's office. And again, we can't thank uh, Tim Harris, um, the former Tulsa County District Attorney, and oh, I'm forgetting the name of one of the.
0: It was Susan Witt, and she's Susan, no longer with the DA's yes, office. Susan but Witt. She was- she was instrumental in that.
2: Absolutely. And she was not an attorney. She, But she came to us and said, hey, you know, our attorneys are having to work with these cases. These family members have had loved ones die by murder. They have to work with them. And our attorneys are really having a hard time personally, but also just from their job requirements to get the information they need because the families were coming in with such an understandably difficult grieving, trauma, recovery, uh, grief needs, that they would bring that in and want to talk about those things to the attorneys and they felt overwhelmed. And I give, again, Susan Witt and Tim Harris a lot of credit because that was their idea. They br- that wasn't our idea. That was their idea. They brought it to us. I'm glad we could respond. And I'm forever indebted to you, Trish, for your willingness to step up. And I get a kick out of it. I mean, I, with all fondness, is it didn't take you very long. I think we like walked out the door and you just looked at me and go. You just rolled your eyes and go. Okay, I'm in. And uh, <laughs> and you did both of them for a long time. And of course, I worried about you a little bit. I think sometimes our listeners may think they don't. They forget about. And by the way, mental health professionals forget about this. You know, the whole issue around self care. And uh, you know, uh, clinicians struggle with addiction just like everybody in the general. We're no different in that many ways from the general population. And I really kind of worried about you doing both that. Two times a month, the survivors of suicide, and then two times a month, strength and serenity group. Talk about that a little bit in terms of your own self care and what that was like for you uh, over time.
0: Well, luckily, I worked when I was at community care when I started doing those groups. I worked with obviously a bunch of other mental health professionals, and so I had, without disclosing, you know, any. Uh, protected health information, I could talk to some of my coworkers a little bit about, you know, this is, this is a lot. It's a lot of grief to deal with. And probably for the first three or four years of facilitating survivors of suicide, my children who were older at the time knew that every other Thursday night they were going to get a call from their mom. I just needed to hear their voices. And that was very powerful for me to just check in with my kids to know they were okay. There have been a couple of times over the years that I've reached out to you or I've reached out to Mark because there was a situation that was a little overwhelming and I just needed to bounce that off somebody. And so I've always felt like the support from Mental Health Association Oklahoma was there if I needed it. And, you know, what I have learned and I don't I would never have been able to do this as a younger clinician, but what they need is me to just be present and, and to bear witness to their grief. I can't fix it for them, but I can be there and, and show them how to gain support from their peers who've been where they are, but also just to bear witness.
2: Yeah, you know, I can really relate to a lot of that so much. And I don't know if you recall this, but, oh, it's been a long time ago. I think it was in 97, if I'm not mistaken that in the jinx community they had had a suicide cluster of young people and yes. uh we were asked to uh i it occurred or all kind of uh, a lot of things happened and i was on vacation and when i came back from vacation um this is before cell phones and texts where we could do like rapid communication and actually get away from work a little bit i you know uh, uh i got it when i came back they said well we're gonna uh, uh there was a big a meeting in the Jinx community, we're going to do a, uh, we're going to provide a support group, and for those families, a separate time-limited survivors support group, just for those families that had lost these uh, young people. And uh, I said, asked the question, "Well, who's going to do the support group?" And uh, they said, "Well, uh, you are." Oh, okay. <laughs> and I and I did. I did it twice a month for a year. Uh, we finally uh, it turned out jointly. We all agreed, and we ended the support group but i had the exactly the same thing my son was a lot younger then, and our son my wife and my son and after that group i would want to i had this urge to go home and get in bed with him mm-hmm. uh, just to touch him to have that contact i totally relate to that uh, and again watching those families take care of each other and uh, very similar to what you just described i used to say it's like you all go down the hallway into a room together and you look back at me and you close the door but i can't that i'm i can't go into that room with you when you come out together i can be there with you but you have your own place with each other and no one understands it quite like you do and again to watch the beauty of uh, you know sometimes people can sort of like oh it's just a support group uh there's a lot of A lot of very powerful things that go on there that are very therapeutic and healing. And I'm sure you have witnessed that in both of the support groups that you did many, many times.
0: There's one of my favorite quotes by Mr. Rogers that when he was a child and bad things would happen, his mother would always say, look for the helpers. There's always helpers. And that's what the support groups are. The people are in a different place. You know, in an ideal support group, you've got them at different stages. And so for the people who are a little farther along, they can reach their hand back to those who are fresh in it. But it's powerful to see for the people who are new to see that there's hope. And then that for the people who are a little farther along to recognize that, that they are not in the exact same place that they were. It's just a powerful experience that I think people just, it, oh, it's just a support group, but it's it's probably one of the most powerful things in terms of healing that there is.
2: Um, I always say that when I finish my career as a, a practicing clinician, uh, and I still practice, but in just in terms of my work, I'll, I'll say, well, I'll have my top five. I call it my top five. And I've said ever since that, uh, leading that support group of those wonderful people who were in so much pain of lo- losing their children to suicide, that will always be in my top five because of just the power and the, it, it sounds counterintuitive, but the beauty of what went on there and the healing and the care and the, that goes on. And I know that there are people who, Uh, And I'm not sure about the Strength and Serenity support group, but in the survivors, there are people who may quit coming. They'll come back. They'll come back around anniversaries. They'll come back. Maybe they're having a difficult time. And some of them have been coming back for a long time. Is that not the case?
0: Yes, absolutely. Strength and Serenity is a little different. We have the core group, and then there are a few that, you know, uh, one is a um, a young parent and her she had a loved one murdered several years ago well her life has changed so she's not coming as much because she has young children but she comes back occasionally and it's people are always welcome and it's um, as a facilitator it's really nice to have people come back to see how they've healed as much as they're going to heal. It's always a tender place, always. It doesn't go away. And I always say that losing somebody to suicide or homicide is a real different kind of grief than losing somebody to old age or a disease. And I'm not sure that I can really articulate that clearly, but I, I believe that to be true. And It's always, always tender. Grief is always a little tender, but death by homicide and death by suicide, it leaves you much more raw and traumatized.
2: Right. And the difficulty in obtaining any closure is always, always an issue that these people struggle. They can't get closure a lot of times and um, to make sense of it. And that sometimes is something they they carry around from the rest of their lives. Right. Uh,
0: My Strength and Serenity group, they just hate that word closure. Um, And it's really more adapting, adapting to what has happened because it's never, you're never going to get the answers. And for suicide, too, you're never going to get the answers that make sense to us. And the fact that with homicide, somebody else made the choice to take your loved one's life. And with suicide, your loved one made that choice. And those are such hard things to wrap yourself around. And for suicide to, to... be aware and to know that your loved one had to be in so much pain to make that decision. And, and I have people who've attended other grief resources in the community and they've had nothing but positive things to say, but they just didn't fit as well as they have in the support groups that were specific to their loss.
2: Trish, what do, if someone is interested coming to the survivors group, when, how do they come? And then let's talk about that one first. Then we'll talk about strength and serenity because it's a little different.
0: Sure. Uh, Survivors of Suicide meets the first and third Thursdays of the month here at Legacy Plaza and it's from 6 to 7:30. Strength and Serenity. And I wanna I wanna say something real quickly about that. Steve Kuhnzweiler has supported and continued that group. They the DA's office twice a year does an event for people who've lost a loved one and they're they're Christmas tree event is actually this Wednesday night at six o'clock at Chandler Park. And the the DA's office puts up trees and they maintain the ornaments. And each year, somebody who's lost a loved one can bring an ornament with their loved one's picture or name or just something that represents them. And the, the DA's office does a brief little you know, talk, sometimes Vic Regalado's been there, Chief Jordan has been there, it just depends. I usually try to speak a little bit about the group. And then in the spring they do a flower planting and it is to honor their loved ones and so that people don't forget. So the Strength and Serenity, It meets the second and fourth Thursdays, and to find out information about that, we ask that someone who's interested contact the district attorney's office. Heather Prater is the victim's advocate. I believe she's the, I'm not sure exactly what her title is, she's the supervisor. But if you call the DA's office and ask for Heather Prater in the victim's advocate office, she can do that screening and kind of give more information.
2: Uh, And so uh, we hope that our listeners who could benefit from this, and we know it's scary for people to come that first time. It's a really, really hard thing when they get there and they're there. It's a great relief and they really feel a lot better. We see how many times we've seen that, Uh, but it's hard for them to get there that first time.
0: Absolutely. It is very difficult, but most people... Um, and I always tell people, this isn't a lifetime commitment. You come when you can, you come as long as you need to, and you can always come back. And some people might try it once or twice and go away and then come back a year later.
2: Right. And that, that's a good... Uh, and it's a very good point because timing is everything. Sometimes people... Uh, they need to know for themselves when they're ready to begin to. What we don't want is, and what happens so much for both of the in both of the related to why these support groups exist, is that people will isolate and they will suffer alone. And we know that uh, long term, that that is not a healthy way. It has um, potential negative uh, results, and we don't want people out there alone and isolated. That's why these support groups exist. You can also, if you're a listener, you can call our Mental Health Assistance Center here at Mental Health Association and get the information. And by the way, we do not have a yet a Strength and Serenity group in Oklahoma City area, but we do have uh, a Survivors of Suicide Support Group. And again, you can contact and get that information from our website, mhaok.org, or you can call our number and get that information of uh, when those uh, when and where those meetings uh, are at. You just recently, you were at Community Care for a long time, and then I got word that you had taken a new position over at 12 and 12. Take some time and talk about uh, your new position, but also what's uh, remind our listeners what the services that 12 and 12 provides, the role in the community that they have, and uh, what's going on over at 12 and 12.
0: Thanks, Mike. I'm really excited about that. It's been almost a year I took a position at 12 and 12 as their chief operating officer. I have been affiliated with 12 and 12 in some capacity, referring there, those kind of things, uh, about as long as I have been involved with the Mental Health Association. So never thought I'd end up working there, but, you know, things change. And I'm getting towards, um, I mean, I've I've got some years left in my career, but I decided that I wanted the last years of my career to be in a place that I felt was more directly tied to services, and that it would be very missional for me. So I've been at 12 and 12 a little less than a year and have seen amazing things happen. First, I'll talk about the continuum of care, and we provide substance use treatment for individuals over the age of 18. We provide medically supervised detox with medication-assisted treatment for people suffering from opioid use disorder or alcohol use disorder. We have residential treatment, uh, a transitional living, which uh, people are out of treatment, but they are still living on site and we're providing food and shelter. They have to get a job and then it helps them prepare to go out on their own. We also have an outpatient program and we have those are all provided at 6333 East Skelly Drive, and then offsite, very close to where we started at 12 East 12th Street, where which the Mental Health Association owns now, we have Bryce House, which is a residence for homeless veterans who suffer from a substance use disorder. And we provide some programming there, but housing and food and shelter for, for veterans, and they can stay, I believe, up to 18 months. We've been very successful there. About 80% of the veterans who complete the program go on to permanent housing, which we're we're very proud of being that place for all of our, our residents. We also have, about three years ago, 12 and 12 has always provided services for people who have commercial insurance or the ability to pay. But a few years ago, decided to really make that a larger opportunity. There aren't a lot of in fact, we're the only residential treatment facility in Tulsa that provides substance use services. We may not be the only, but we're close to the only. And we are definitely the largest substance use treatment facility in the state of Oklahoma. So we do have that unit for commercial people who have commercial insurance. So those are kind of the services. But what I'm really excited about is Uh, December 12th is this Thursday, and we have a volunteer. Her name is Jen Kirchhoff. Last year, she came up with this idea that we need a 12 and 12 day, and what better day than December 12th to help people see what services 12 and 12 provides in this community, and also to increase awareness of addiction. It affects all of us somehow. We may not have a substance use disorder, we may not have a family member, but we've got a friend or a coworker. We all know somebody who has suffered, and most of us know more than one person. And we also want to decrease stigma. It can happen to anyone. And treatment is available. Not everybody needs detox. Not everybody needs residential. But we provide outpatient services also. And as we, we talked so much about support groups, Mike, and support groups for recovery from a substance use disorder, are vital. And there's there's a variety of options for people. There's 12-step groups, there's celebrate recovery. Some people find it just in a, a religious affiliation in a spiritual realm. Through the grant from the Hardesty Family Foundation, we've been able to integrate yoga and meditation and music into our treatment, which helps people learn to kind of calm their minds and their bodies down and to just, you know, be able to sit for a minute. We have a partnership with Oklahoma State University. They provide our physician services so that we are able to provide the same services that a hospital can in terms of detox. And then also for people, as I mentioned before, alcohol use disorder and opiate use disorder that we can provide through OSU, OSU provides the medication assisted treatment. And that has been just such a tremendous partnership, not just for 12 and 12 and OSU, but for our community to have those resources available that aren't always easy to find.
2: Yeah. I, you know, one of the things that we're really proud of is our role that we played in helping get the working with Brian Day at 12 and 12 and the board over there to in um, the the mayor's office and Tulsa Police Department to get the sobering center up and running there. And of course, the Hardesty Foundation was really supportive of that. And we're so proud of that because I think we're we're one of the very few in the country that has a medical supervised detox is a connected or access so people can actually access that out of the sobering center maybe take a little bit of time and talk about specifically how does the sobering center work
0: oh i'm so glad you brought that up thank you mike there's so many services that i often forget I, i always leave something out the sobering center is a partnership between 12 and 12 police department city of tulsa so when an officer picks up somebody for public intoxication they can bring them to the sobering center, and they are the individual will sleep that off for at least ten hours. Um, if they need to, we can we can do we can wash their clothing. They have a place to sleep. We feed them. We hydrate them. They can shower, and it saves the police officer a lot of time. It saves the individual legal proceedings. They don't have to go to jail to get booked. They don't have a charge. And for an officer, I think it took about three hours to take somebody to the jail and to fill out all the paperwork. It takes us about eight minutes for them to drop somebody off and be on their way back out on the streets dealing with other crimes that that really have a greater impact on our community. Then we have the option, you know sometimes it's um, it's a person who's made a once in a lifetime really bad decision. So they get to sleep it off, and they realize that, wow, that was a bad decision, and I'm never going to do that again, and they don't have the legal charges pending. But for somebody that this is a pattern, we can get them into treatment. If they need detox, the Sobering Center is on the south end of our building. Detox is on the north end. We can just walk them around, admit them, and get them into detox. Or if they don't need detox, they can step right into a residential bed. And let me let me put in a plug here for the Oklahoma Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services. For years, Oklahoma has struggled so much with getting people who don't have insurance or the ability to pay into treatment. And a few months ago, it would take a male about 200 days to get a bed once he said he wanted treatment. The state has worked very hard in This summer, they funded 30 more beds at 12 and 12. And now we can say that we are not operating on a waiting list anymore. If somebody comes into our facility, we can do an assessment. And if they meet criteria, most likely we're going to have a bed. And that is amazing because when people want help, they really need to get that help right now, not 200 days later.
2: When that was announced, you know, again, we know that timing is everything. When somebody says, "Okay, I'm ready to go they might not feel that way tomorrow or the next day, 200 days. I mean, it was just, I've rolled my eyes and and not to any fault of 12 and 12, just the reality of access to treatment uh, for these individuals. But, when this came out, I brought this flyer into our leadership team and we passed it around. Everybody was like, is this a joke? No, this is real. And uh, oh, what, what an incredible thing. And I, I join you in, in congratulating and thanking the Oklahoma Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services, uh, Terry White, Carrie Slatton Hodges, and the team over there for making that possible here, having our community. It's a big deal it's huge it's absolutely huge it's a it's a massive step forward in terms of access to treatment when somebody is ready and wants it and re- raises their hand and which is a big deal with substance abuse okay i'm ready uh let's go so to have that available and uh you know great work there uh, also kudos to 12 and 12 for the, the having the vision and really advocating to you know, bring that about and you guys are to be very much congratulated and supported. And and I noticed you mentioned the Hardesty Foundation, Michelle Hardesty and their family have been supportive to us on the Sobering Center. But also when you talk about the, the classes, the, the yoga, the things like that. You know, those are big deals for people who are in re- in in different forms of recovery to be able to uh, have those meditation, uh, yoga tw- type experiences as a part of, as, build it in as a part of their their re- overall recovery. Something that they can use for the rest of their lives to help them uh, maintain their
0: sobriety. Absolutely. Let me take just a second to talk about 12 and 12 day this Thursday. Our goal is to have 1200 different donors. And you can go to our website, you can go to our Facebook page, but we're just asking people to donate $12 or 120. Or, you know, if somebody wants to donate 12,000 or 12 million, we'll sure take it. You can do that a one time donation or $12 a month for a year. But those many of the people who come to us, don't have the resources to pay for treatment, and some of them are homeless. They walk in with the clothes on their back, and those funds allow us to help them with clothing, to help them with uh, just their toiletries, those kind of things that most of us just take for granted because we don't have to think about, where am I going to get a toothbrush and toothpaste? We also have a list of 12 items that we are constantly in need of at the center, Um You know, some of the things are adult coloring books and colored pencils or crayons, uh, just helping people learn to fill their time in ways that aren't related to their addictive behavior. So all of those things are available on our website or our Facebook page. And we appreciate anything that anybody can do. We'll have a press conference Thursday morning at 930 in our newly renovated courtyard. So, Mike, I don't know if you've seen it yet, but if you get a chance, come over Thursday morning and come out to the courtyard it's it's amazing it's beautiful and it's been so fun to watch the clients out there appreciating being outside even on the days that it's pretty chilly there's some of them out there throwing the football or just you know eating lunch at one of the outdoor tables or I am lucky enough to have my office on the courtyard side so I can see it and I'll look out there and there'll be several of them just laying on the grass and it's just it's just wonderful to see people enjoying their lives again.
2: And all the renovations you've done there, again, uh, the whole idea that because you don't have money doesn't mean that you don't have opportunity to receive your treatment in a beautiful facility that looks nice. and a great experience. And I know that's been a driving force of thought that you guys again are to be congratulated on and and on on the successes you've had. And also all the people in the community who have been very supportive of that process. A lot of a lot of money had to be raised to make that happen. And uh, it's an amazing community we live in in that way.
0: Absolutely. Tulsa is is a beautiful city to live in. It's very philanthropic and I wasn't born and raised here, but I'm proud to say I'm a Tulsan.
2: Absolutely. Trish, I wanna just thank you again. You are one of my heroes, and uh, it's been a pleasure to have worked with you all these years and be a collaborator, we're friends. You know, we don't always see each other because we, uh, we're, we're so busy, but we always enjoy our time together when we get this chance. And it's a great honor for us as Mental Health Association Oklahoma to have you on. It's just been a real pleasure to take this time to interview you.
0: Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it so much.
3: At Mental Health Association Oklahoma, we've spent the year asking people, how do they wanna be seen? It's a simple question that is sometimes hard to answer. We've created a big mosaic with answers from hundreds of people. They say things like hashtag see me as capable, hardworking, or kind. Or maybe hashtag see me as a leader, an advocate, or a change maker. As an organization, we talk a lot about people first. Our programs and services are designed to help people be seen and acknowledged for their humanity. From suicide prevention and fighting stigma around mental illness, to ending homelessness and reforming criminal justice, a lot of people in this organization are moving the needle on important topics in the state of Oklahoma. The thing is, these programs and services are not possible without our generous donors. Join us in our mission by donating today. Visit mhaok.org and hit the big donate button at the top of the page, or donate on our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash M-H-A-O-K-L-A.